Hi, I'm Steve Lance, your host of the Capitol Report on NTD News. If you have not done so yet, please hit that subscribe button to stay up to date with all of the latest news coming out of the nation's capital and beyond. Tech workers in the country are bracing for a round of massive layoffs. Just this week alone, a handful of companies announced upcoming layoffs and hiring freezes. Hiring typically trends around how financially robust a company is and how they're feeling financially. Lyft says it would lay off roughly 13% of its staff. And Amazon says it'll pause corporate hiring for the next several months. And big changes coming to Twitter after Elon Musk takes over. Mass layoffs began today with reports saying up to 50% of employees could be laid off. But the overall job market is still trending well, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics report today. The U.S. economy added around 260,000 jobs in October. Now, this was higher than projected forecasts, but the same report also showed the U.S. unemployment rate rose to 3.7 percent. Does this new data from the Labor Department indicate a resilient economy? We're happy to bring on a chief economist at ZipRecruit, Julia Pollock, to discuss. All right, Julia, thank you for sparing the time to chat with me today about the current economic state. I want to know what is your take on the current labor market? We know the Biden administration keeps touting it as strong, but some are saying the worst is yet to come. What's your current assessment? So the future outlook is very uncertain, but for now, the labor market remains very, very strong. Job gains are about 60% larger than they were before the pandemic, and the economy is adding good jobs across a wider set of industries as well. And some market experts are saying that unemployment will start to pick up following the Federal Reserve's 75 basis point rate hike. Some Democrats are even asking the chairman, um, Chairman Powell, how many job cuts should Americans be preparing for? Do you think they have a valid concern here or are they, you know, just kind of um, just kind of hoping or looking at the worst case scenario? For now, it's clear that the labor market is slowing down, but it's slowing down very, very, very gradually. Uh, at this current rate, it will be about 15 more months before the labor market gets back to pre-COVID very warm conditions from the current sort of overheated conditions. Uh, that said, the labor market can turn quickly. We know that when conditions deteriorate, when businesses start to worry, uh, they can lay off workers quickly. Th the most important thing to watch is the demand picture. Is consumer demand for most goods and services still strong or is it deteriorating? It's deteriorated, of course, in the housing market, but elsewhere, it's holding steady for now. I want to get into politics a little bit. We're right here at the midterms. Um, Republicans are really capitalizing on the economic downturn that we've seen. Democrats, of course, say that this is just the effect of just a natural side effect of the pandemic lockdowns um, and that we're experiencing this not only in the U.S., but across the, the globe. How much of this would you say is due to the pandemic versus how much of it is due to the Biden administration's policies or Republicans would argue excessive government spending. What is your take on this? Well, it does appear that much of the inflation that we're seeing is the result of not only supply chain issues that were predominantly the, the cause at the beginning, but also a large amount of government spending. Uh, both administrations spent a lot to get us out of this pandemic crisis. They decided to err on the side of spending too much rather than too little and risking the jobless recovery that we saw after the Great Recession. 
The downside of that has been inflation, and uh, it does appear that we're sort of exporting that problem around the globe. Rising interest rates are also exporting financial instability to other countries. And so, yes, there, there is great uncertainty. Uh, these are grave problems. We're not really seeing anybody come up with very creative policy solutions to them. Right now, the main solution on the table to uh, bridge the gap between demand and supply is to destroy demand uh, by letting the Fed you know, raise interest rates uh, and, and uh, hurt economic conditions and possibly hurt the job market in the process. Politicians are coming up with very little else on either side of the aisle. What would you suggest, having been in the financial arena for a while, you said that there's not many creative solutions being put forward on the table right now. What do you think some of those solutions um, should be that they should be discussing? Well, now's a good time to talk about reducing deficit spending. Uh, that also sort of, you know, has a tightening effect on the labor market, but it can be more targeted than uh, monetary tightening. Uh, it's also a time to think about taking the constraints off this economy. So there's so much more housing demand than supply. Uh, and instead of destroying demand and reducing household formation, how about let's do a really thorough rethink of all of the policies that are reducing the supply of housing and preventing us from building new homes that people so desperately need. Now's the time for creative policy uh, solutions. Okay, thank you, Julia, for your insights. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Take care. Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin won his race in Virginia last year, basing his campaign largely on parental rights. And some wonder if parents across the nation could help deliver a similar win for Republicans in Congress this year. To discuss, we're happy to have on Tamara Farah, a team member for FreedomWorks. All right, Tamara, thanks for joining me today. Um, you work for an advocacy group that aims for smaller government in many areas. Now, your focus specifically is education. Um, the government has been involved in public education for quite some time now. It seems like quite a big task to try to pull in the reins here a little bit. What exactly are you all trying to do to reduce the government's role in the classrooms? Exactly. Well, of course, with government-run public schools, um, they are in, deeply involved and more so than um, many of us want right now, that is for sure. Um, and so we are working hard to put the power back in the hands of parents. Uh, there are several federal laws and many states have laws supporting parental rights in education very specifically and the involvement of parents. Even the uh, law in 1979 that established the Department of Education states clearly that it is the primary responsibility of parents to direct their child's education. And it is the primary responsibility of schools in localities to support that. Um, and this takeover of schools in terms of curriculum, dictating cultural items um, is way above and beyond. The billions and billions of dollars that the federal government has spent supposedly to increase testing uh, scores, et cetera, and student performance over the last 30 years has been a complete failure. And I think it is going to actually impact the midterms this year. Um, we are seeing that parents, when parents are polled, well, first of all, when voters are polled, we all know the answer. It's inflation uh, and the economy are the number one things on the minds of of voters. And we've seen a 27% swing of, you know, suburban moms from Democrats, Republican 
just since August, and it's inflation and it's the economy. Everyone is concerned about that. But when you uh, look at polls of parents, a Harris poll shows 83% of voting parents say education is more important to them now than it's ever been. Um, and 62% of parents are very concerned, according to a poll by the National Parent Union, about the ability of schools to provide quality teaching and instruction. And I believe we're seeing that reflected in poor student performance. For example, ACT scores are the worst they've been in 30 years. And so, and Heritage found out that, you know, 70% of parents don't want their kids being taught about sex and sexual preferences and gender identity, at least uh, not until fourth grade or fifth grade. So we do have a huge issue going on right now. Another poll just came out showing that around 70% of voters say they would not support a candidate who approves of puberty blockers for minors, with just 27% saying they do support minors transitioning. And that's even among Democrats, 57% say they don't support this, while 42 say they do support it. I wanna know your reaction to this. Are you surprised at all by this, or have your interactions shown you that this is the case? It, it's definitely shown us that it's the case. It, these things know no party. I wonder if, you know, just from my experiences with schools and parents, if teachers even understand just even federal law around parental rights. Um, federal law supports a parent school compact that includes involvement in the classroom. And of course, under the banner of COVID, parents were not allowed in classrooms, and now they're only allowed in for certain times. And from the reports I've heard from parents, you know, it would appear they're whitewashing what's being said while the parent is there or taking certain things down from the walls, uh, you know, when the parents come in. But their federal law says that parents are allowed to sit in the classroom, are allowed to be in the classroom, participate, to be on committees and give input, have regular meaningful conversations with teachers and school officials on student progress. And they have a right, according to FERPA, to request to review all of their child's records. And that includes anything that is being written down. Speaking of that, I mean, it's notable how far we've strayed from those federal laws that are there for parents to make use of. And I want to ask you about the, the values of this. You know, there are people who say that the traditional values, like recognizing the inherent difference between the genders or keeping children in, in a realm of innocence until a certain age, as far as teaching them about sexual activities, they would say that these traditional values are outdated or not inclusive enough. What is your response to that? Again, I don't believe it's the job of schools to render that opinion for someone else's children. So for me, it isn't just about what I believe or another parent believes or even about what a teacher believes. This discussion and this decision should revolve around the fundamental and supreme rights of parents in the lives of their children. It's according to the Protection of People Rights Amendment. It's a very specific law federal law that states that parents have the right to request to inspect all curriculum. If you had shown children some of these books that are in the classroom and, and, and in the resource center in schools, out on if you, if you were an adult and you showed that to a child, out on a sidewalk, you could be arrested for obscenity. 
And so, you know, we're just in a very bizarre time right now. And I think that parents just need to continue to push back. Right, very eye-opening information. Thank you for those specifics and your insight into this. We appreciate your time, Tamara. Thank you so much for having me. I just want to thank everybody for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our content, please leave us a rating and a review as it really goes a long way in helping us spread the truth. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve Lance at NTD, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.